stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. It's just gone 1 o'clock on a Tuesday. That means it's time for the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. I'm your host, Silly Sharalambas, and I'm joined in studio by Andrea Teagle, our assistant editor on the First Thing uh, newsletter and editor of the Weekend Thing newsletter, uh, which you can catch by subscribing to at dailymaverick.co.za or the cliffcentral.com website. Hello and welcome back, Andrea. Hi, thanks. Um, Andrea, so what's it like being the assistant editor of uh, the First Thing newsletter? Give us a little bit of background about the, the process that goes into giving birth to this beast, and, you know, which comes out at 6 o'clock every morning. Um, well, uh, as the assistant editor, I get to do all the very riveting things involved. Um, basically, you just put the, the structure together and, and add in all the um, individualized bits for each day. So, um, yeah, quite a lot of it can be done the night before. So those are the things which I do, um, including the weather, financial indicators, um, various things which are coming up the next day, um, a fact of the day or the, or the quote. Um, and then John is, is lucky enough to get to wake up, you know, in the very early hours of the morning to put in um, all the, you know, the while you were sleeping news. Which usually revolves around some sort of death and destruction. So Always, uh, yes. There's a common theme. It, it never changes. <laughs> yeah. While, while we're sleeping, the rest of the world yeah. is killing ourselves, right? Yeah. Um, uh, one of the funnest parts is obviously getting to do the quote and, and, and the fact of the day. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, how do you go about finding the – I mean, you got to every day keep coming up with um, you know some kind of fact that's both interesting and, and witty and lighthearted. Yeah, I, I think my problem is I tend to sort of – lean always towards the, the science-y slash natural world kind of facts. Um, so my challenge is really trying to balance it out with, with things which other people might be more interested in as well. Um, I like to ask people. Quite a lot of people get very excited, you know, about sharing their, their personal favorite fact. Yeah, exactly. seeing it published the next day. Um, but otherwise, you know, you just, you just check various websites and um, I suppose you just start taking note of all the, mm. the random things that you, you hear quite often, you know, when you start listening out for it. And, uh, I mean, you, you do almost, uh, something I try and do is, is try and guess, um, who was responsible for the quote. So try and pick up whether it was one done by you or by John. Yeah. Uh, and, and to see if I can guess right, uh, each day. And generally, I know if there's some kind of, uh, war theme to it, then it, chances are John Stubart's been, is responsible for that, for that fact. Yeah, indeed. He has quite a lot of, Quite quirky war-related facts. <laughs> um, I, I've got a, a random fact for us today, uh, and that is, um, and something that's been trumpeted quite loudly in in Britain, uh, which is the start of um, the UK's first and what they're calling poo bus. Um, was launched and uh, this is a bus service that runs from Bristol Airport to Bath City Centre. Um, mm-hmm. It has a tr- it can travel up to 186 miles in one tank. And the, inter- the reason why they're calling this the poo bus is not because it smells bad or whatever it is. <laughs> Although maybe it does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that it, it runs on biomethane, so it's called the the biobus, and and it's run from the um, fr- from the the fuel that gets generated or the energy that gets generated from biomethane, which mm-hmm. um, can be fueled by human 
human waste. Um, human waste, also um, waste dumps, I think, mm-hmm. you know, of, of general waste material as well. Uh, and there's a really cool pi- picture on the, they painted, uh, they put this picture on the side of the mm-hmm. bus, which is um, five people sitting on a toilet um, as the bus is going past. So, yeah, <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> which, which is yeah. quite funny and, and has been known. And uh, so some interesting things from it. It emits 30% less carbon dioxide wow. uh, than, than conventional diesel buses and can travel uh, for, as we said, up to 186 and miles. And it has a constant supply of fuel, yeah. you know, which is never going to run out. Exactly. Um, so, although, um, though, how economically viable is it? Well, I guess they, they don't go into the details of, mm. um, uh, obviously, the cost to produce that biomethane. Mm. Um, I think, obviously, as they find more and more product, uh, more, more commercial uh, uses for the biomethane, what will happen is the production facilities will, will become more efficient uh, and the cost of producing it yeah, will come down. Of course, yeah. But I guess, you know, as you say, this is kind of a never-ending resource that <laughs> yeah. we, we could tap into. So it's really just about getting the processes down. Yeah, imagine a place like India, you know, where their sewerage system really is is yeah, not functional. A lot of places, well, could and be more really than a billion great, people, you know? right? Yeah, um, yeah. So tap into in, into that. Um, I mean, if we could, you know, take it a step further, and and, and you say take that waste, that sewerage, and convert mm. that into uh, into some into an energy source, and then you know we'd make a big step into creating the imbalances of of the planet. Um, so the, U, the UK poo bus. I wonder how long it'll be before we. We see, a South poo, yeah, we see a poo bus on the roads of South Africa. <laughs> poo taxis. Yeah. That, that would be cool. Yeah, that would be cool. Um, on to some more serious stuff. You were at a conference last week that um, that centered around women's rights and land rights. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, um, it was very interesting, particularly um, you know because this week is the start of the 16 days of activism against um, you know uh, for no violence against women and children and. Um, one of the big sort of root causes of that are um, power imbalances between the gender and the fact that women are financially dependent on, on men. Um, so econo- economic empowerment of women is, is quite a, a big topic and something which has been focused on quite a lot um, internationally at the moment as, as a way to combat gender-based violence but also advance women's rights more generally um, and fuel economic growth. So this conference um, looked at that and also looked at human trafficking um, on the second day. Um, the first day, though, the conversation very much focused around land rights of women. Um, and, you know, even though this is this is only one particular way that you can address imbalances, it, it ties into a lot of different things. Um, what, I th- what I found was quite interesting is, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of the smallholder farmers um, are, in fact, women um, because, you know, the men go off to the cities, mines, etc. to find yeah. to find work. But they don't actually own that land. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's problematic because then they can't attract investment. Um, it's very difficult for them mm-hmm. to, you know, to, to plan long term. Or get credit. Exactly. You know, to make, to to make the land. Into the, exactly. Into the land. Well, well, that's the second thing. You know, if you don't have, you know, ownership of the land as collateral, you can't really access credit um, so that's like a major drawback on on helping women to be you know economically empowered and, and financially um, independent uh, so yeah so there were some very interesting discussions around how you know we can make um, recognize women's rights to land um, and then you know the bigger impacts that 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 can make um, isn't isn't one of the biggest challenges to that is is the perceptions and the traditional approach to 
uh, women's rights in those areas. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something like in globally, in fact, it's, it's not just Africa. There's a problem everywhere. Um, although particularly here as well, but, um, something like 20% of, of land, um, is owned by women, um, which is, you know, just extremely skewed. Mm. Um, so, um, one of the speakers was quite interesting because he focused, partic- his company focuses particularly on, um, helping women to, you know, to realize ownership of their land. Um, his name was uh, Vivek Maru. He was the CEO of a NGO called Namati. Um, and they were, they're a, a law NGO. Um, so what they, what they do is focus on, um, communities' customary, um, claims on land. Um, but then as they're helping them to discuss that and pen it, you know, um, and submit those claims to try and, and make them gender equitable and in line with the national constitution, you know, provided that the national constitution actually protects women's li- rights. Um, apparently it's quite an effective way of, of bridging, you know, those, those inequalities and making sure that, um, you know, women are equally represented when those, those land claims are, are realized. So I, I think they've had some, um, you know, some success in that, it appears. Um, but, you know, so many barriers, as you say, just cultural perceptions are that, you know, the men own the land and the women work it, basically. Yeah, so it seems like there's still a long way to go, but, uh, you know, obviously having these conferences and having that awareness uh, and having the media pick up on these issues are just uh, the start of a very long uh, battle. Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, talking is always interesting. But I, what was interesting actually about this conference is they got hold of people who are really trying to make a difference on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Uh, we'll come back to that. Uh, what we, who've got on the line at the moment is Ranjani Munasami, uh, associate editor at the Daily Maverick. Uh, on your way to Danhauser, I believe, Ranjani. I I am silly. I've just passed the hick town of Sikhat right now, and I saw a big sign that says Party Town. So you never know what goes on in these um, Party town. Towns, you know. <laughs> Party town, <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Ranjini, are you escaping the madness that is Johannesburg and what's going on uh, at Lituli House and Kasatu House at the moment? Oh, silly! I tell you, I'm in desperate need of some oxygen after spending way too much time at both Kasatu House and um, and Lituli House. Um, you know, last week there was a press conference at uh, Kasatu House. You, you, you'd know that. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Kosatu um, voted to expel them, their, their biggest affiliate, NUMSA. And then um, last week, they, they held another Central Executive Committee meeting and then they had a, a press conference after that. And then they, just, they decided, they announced that, oh, they're going to have a peace process now, a political peace process, which may see NUMSA coming back. And... Uh, you know, I wanted to shout out in this press conference, are you freaking kidding me? Like, why would you take the decision to expel your affiliate, go through all that pain, um, and, and send the entire federation into a crisis, only to decide afterwards, oh, maybe we should have a peace process and reverse the decision. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, you, you just wonder sometimes what, what, you know, what goes on if there's any kind of forward thinking when such decisions are make, made because you know it, it, it was clear that expelling such a huge union like NUMSA would have tremendous implications for Kosatu and for the labor sector and for the, uh, the, 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 the you know the, the alliance uh, for the ANC all of that 
was quite obvious, but it seems that it only kind of triggered in Kosatu and the ANC after the decision was taken. So now the ANC is leading this process of negotiations um, in, in Kosatu. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the other strange thing is that Kosatu has now roped in Dwellendima Babi to sell this peace process. And Babi was always aligned to Numsa. All of a sudden, he's teaching this new gospel. And he seems to be doing so because um, there is um, a kind of temporary abeyance uh, of his own disciplinary matter. Um, and it looks as if, uh, if you know, Zelindi uh, Mabavi thinks that uh, the whole thing can be patched up and there can be a nice, neat solution to this incredible uh, fallout in Kosasa right now. Does it sound so, like, um, <clears throat> sorry, Ranjini, does it sound like a deal's been brokered there by, by Zuel and Zima? No, well, I think he's been sold the plan. I think that the anti task team led by Cyril Ramaphosa, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa is, is a man about town these days. He's busy trying to broker peace in Parliament, in Lesotho, in Sudan, and Kosovo. <laughs> he's quite a busy guy. So, um, yeah, it seems that he, um, well, the NC task team, uh, uh, the, the deal that, that's been sold at the moment is that they'll hold up on the disciplinary action against Zelensky Mavavi. They'll engage in this new political process, which means that they'll uh, have engagements with all the Kosasi unions again. But that they'll hold NUMSA on the outside at the moment, but continue talking to them with the kind of carrot dangling that, listen, you, you may be let back in if you play nicely. Now, the problem for them is, is that NUMSA definitely does not want to play nicely. And the other thing is that NUMSA has seven Kosati unions on, on their side, which are also kind of upping the stakes, and they think that they are suspending their participation in Kosatu until NUMSA is let back in as a full affiliate, and um, and and that's the only time they'll uh, give any kind of credence to this peace process. So there's uh, there's a kind of uh, standoff at the moment. I don't know if this, this process has any chance of succeeding. From the way I see it, it it, it has a very slim chance. R- Ranjini, it's it's quite crazy if you think about that. This this process almost to to get to this point uh, to to expel NIMSA is something that's been you know, worked on almost for the last two years, if you think back to the statements by Blade and Zamande. Um, and it's been quite a long process. So to kind of get to this point where they're willing to talk peace and, and, and making up, it, it seems very, very strange. It is strange because there was such a determination, including from uh, from the, the FACT and the ANC, to boot NUMSA out. You know, NUMSA took the decision not to support the ANC in the May elections, and I think that's what really up the stakes and, and really convinced people that these, these, these guys no longer belong inside Kosatu and no longer belong inside the alliance, and they, they need to be dealt with. But I think that they will only be able to read the signs of the, the consequences of what happens to Kosatu and what happens to the entry voting bloc amongst workers once Kosatu did leave, because there wasn't really kind of a backlash against NUMSA from society at large or from, from, or from workers in the country saying, yes, you deserved it, you overstepped the mark, and, um, you know, uh, it, it's good riddance to you. In fact, NUMSA has been winning, winning the PR battle 
um, in showing that the, you know, all of this is uh, is uh, the underlying agenda is uh, factionalism in the ANC and um, a political agenda to, to to swing the the ANC away from from workers. Um, and the other thing, silly, is that um, over the weekend the ANC held a national executive committee meeting, and they also discussed the NUMSA crisis, and they also uh, seeming to be more reconciliatory. Uh, saying that they that they they uh, urging the the, the NT task team to continue to work with Kosar to to kind of bridge some kind of unity and cohesion. Again, it seems that you know the horse is long bolted. I mean, how do you now kind of urge um, unity and co- cohesion when Numsa is already outside the fold? So um, you know um, the, the piece I wrote today is that you wonder that the senior most leadership of the ANC. Um, it's sitting in one room. It's looking at a whole range of issues in our society at the moment, including the situation uh, in Parliament, in Kosatu, in society, the fallout over in Kandla. And you would think that there would be some kind of strong leadership coming through, some hard decisions taken. Uh, but you don't see that coming. Um, you know, the, the, uh, yesterday at the press conference at Lassili House, I asked Bereman Sashe, uh, there's a, there were a group of um, ANC veterans that had had basically made public calls saying it's time that President Jacob Zuma paid back the money and that the ANC was able to put this now behind them. So I asked Gwedeman Sashe, are you aware of this? What's your comment on it? And is there any kind of similar um, um, sentiment from members of the NEC who were meeting this weekend? And his response completely threw me. He said... Well, that's not a legitimate structure of ANC veterans. It's people speaking in their individual capacity. And he left it at that. You know, he just, uh, he basically, he's, he's, he's discrediting the legitimacy mm-hmm. of people who dedicated their lives to the liberation struggle. Basically, basically he's pulling the, the dirty Harry quote, opinions are like assholes, everybody's got one. <laughs> Everybody has one, yes. So, and so he's saying there's, there's no legitimacy to, to their call. And he wouldn't say whether anybody else in the NEC uh, feels that way. So what you have is the NEC continuing to have this albatross of Nkandla around its neck. Um, it doesn't it seem to realize just how much damage it is doing to the to the NEC's image, and it just keeps plodding on. Um, the, the NEC also announced yesterday that it was preparing for its 103rd anniversary celebrations in January in, in Cape Town. And, you know, you just wonder, uh, an organization that old, surely there would be some concern amongst the senior most leadership about its image and standing in society and, and what is causing this damage uh, in, in terms of what is happening in parliament, in Kosatu, and around, and in, in, in society at large. But that just doesn't seem to be happening. And they could probably save a lot of money by having the party next to the fire pool and Kandla rather than... <laughs> Hiring yes, a venue but, um, down in Cape Town. Yes, unfortunately, and, and Kandla only has an amphitheater, not a stadium. But as I say that, I just thought, oh, we, we shouldn't give them ideas, eh? Because that <laughs> could be the next big development at Kandla. Uh, and the, the story of the broken fence, I mean, is that going to turn into broken fence gate, or we're just going to call it gate <laughs> now? Um. <laughs> Well, they don't. I don't think they they need a gate anymore in Kanda because people can just walk through, you know, from from the pictures we saw. But again, that question was asked to Gwere Mantashe at the at the press conference yesterday. What's your comment on this? Considering 
how much was spent on this Nkandla development. And on the, that security fence uh, itself, that there was in excess of 9 million spent on it. And now, you know, it's clearly uh, falling down in, in different places. And, and I, I, I mean, that it, you don't need to be a security expert to see that that poses a huge security risk because people can walk in and out of the estate. And Mantasha's response was, I don't know what to say about this. I haven't been to Nkandla in a long time. Uh, and, and again, left us dangling. So, you know, so, uh, sometimes you just wonder, you know, what goes on? I mean, how can the ruling party... Uh, watch all this money being spent on Kandla. Now see the 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 the, 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 the and the whole thing was in in aid of a security upgrade, um, and basic security has been breached because people can just walk through the fence right now, um, and he has no comment on it. So uh, I don't know who is supposed to comment. You, 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 I think it's reaching a level of complete ridiculousness now when it, when it comes to Kandla because there is no logic in ter- from the ANC or from government in terms of how this matter is dealt with. Uh, what we know about um, the security sense is that the contractor was changed, um, and now there's a, there's a whole blame game as to who, sh- who is responsible for um, for fixing it. But also that the, uh, Nkandla is a national key point, you know, so the police should have reported that, the, listen, the fence broke, uh, is broken and people are walking through. But that hasn't happened. It hasn't been reported. Nobody's trying to fix it. So, uh, you know, if, if a national key point can, um, can have such a serious security breach, uh, one wonders about the rest of us and, you know, also the public places. Do we have a chance of being safe um, with, with the police in charge? It, it raises all kinds of concerns and debates in our society. You also mentioned the, ridic- the utter ridiculousness of the situation and where we've got to now. I mean, how much more can a person like Wedemantash take in terms of having to put up and having to front up to, you know, to these allegations uh, and basically to bear the brunt of what has happened there. I mean, how much more can they take? Will we ever hit a breaking point where they just go, enough is enough and we've got to do something drastic to, to rectify the situation? Are we close? No, not at all. I, I don't think, um, you know, they realize how bad things are in society, how frustrated ordinary people are with the situation. Um, and Veda Mantasha has this um, amazing ability to shrug off what he doesn't want to answer and, and pretend it's not happening. Um, and, you know, he, he still believed, I mean, he was announcing at the press conference how strong anti structures are, everything's fine, the word he used was intact. So uh, as far as they're concerned, uh, you know, in Kandla is a storm in a teacup, it could blow over at some stage. They don't realize that this thing has been a burning issue for years now. It's not blowing over. Um, and society is getting progressively angrier at, them, uh, at, at it. But also that that is the underlying problem uh, to do with the fallout in parliament. Uh, because that's the reason the oppositions are, opposition parties are on the war path. They are demanding that President Zuma uh, come to parliament, account for what happened in, in Kandla and also pay back the money. And that situation is not going to change. The opposition is not backing down. That is why the, the truth in parliament broke down. So the opposition parties are going to, are going to keep at it. Um, and there's a real danger now that next year's State of the Nation address may be disrupted because of it, which means that, you know, um, the, the, the very basic things uh, in our society that, you know, kind of hold things up. We say that, you know, there's certain... A level of decorum and, and respect that should be given to Parliament, 
to events like the station, State of the Nation address. So if all of that is now being tracked, where you can have like protest actions at that, those kinds of events, it means that the ANC just is not able to read the signs and react appropriately. Because this meeting at the weekend was the opportunity for the ANC to step up, provide leadership and say, listen, Mr. President, the situation is really bad. This is how we see it should be fixed. Let's save Parliament. Let's try and restore things um, so that you can deliver your State of the Nation address. But unfortunately, that was not at all forthcoming. Okay. Um, Ranjini, I think we're, we're, we're going to let you get back to your party town and your, your travels back to, to Danhauser. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Good luck, guys. All right. Drive safe, Ranjini. Wow. So um, it, it really is, you know, South African politics. You can you can look at South African politics, and um, you know, you, the best script writers in Hollywood don't have anything on 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 South African politics. Um, you know, you look at something like The House of Cards. I don't know if you watch it, Andrea, but it's one of it, it's one of the hit shows in America. Kevin Spacey playing, you know, this dodgy vice president um, of America and just wangling his way through, you know, American, eventually getting himself to the top. And I remember the, the Chinese actually used House of, Car- uh, House of Cards as an example of, of the, of how corrupt American society is. They, they used it as a reference when, you yeah, know, like they, that couldn't possibly be, be all fiction, must be based on, must you be know, based on. Well, real happenings. Sometimes you, you look at it and you go, uh, yeah, maybe they're onto something. <laughs> <laughs> they're onto something there. But, you know, you look at that and you go, geez, um, you know, we, literally House isn't that far behind in terms of the, mm. you know, the stuff that, you know, they just keeps coming up that you can't actually make up. And, mm. you know, we, we always joke if they ever made a, a South African version of that, we could call it Latuli House of Cards. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think we've got Simon Allison on the line and just checking with our producers to see if Simon is, is, is there. Simon, are you there? Good afternoon. Hey, Simon. Good afternoon. Welcome back from your, uh, from your travels. Uh, any ping pong balls to declare? <laughs> to me, that's a disgusting stereotype, and I expect better from you. Oh, uh, sorry, I, I don't know what, what, what you're referring to there, Simon. But welcome back from Thailand, obviously, uh, spending some time with your family over there. Yes, we've um, got my little brother trying to trying to shepherd him through through high school and into university, which is uh, always an interesting challenge. But he's getting there, so that's that's good news. And, and hoping he doesn't turn out like you, um, Simon. I, I have a <laughs> uh, an interesting question. When you arrived in Bangkok. Um, did you get any hassle come flying in from Africa, the the whole Ebola thing and the the scare around the world? I mean, we, we've heard incidents of um, of Americans flying back to New York from South Africa uh, and then being put into quarantine and being given, you know, uh, the right royal treatment uh, and uh, with potential in- infection of Ebola. Did did you experience anything like that flying into Bangkok? No, not at all. Actually, um, it's it's a very relaxed society um, in terms of welcoming people in. Um, it's a country that, that, that relies so heavily on its tourist industry that it does tend to lean, lean on the side of whatever makes it easier for tourists to enter. But for example, Thailand is one of the, the, the easiest visa regimes in the world. Most countries don't need a visa mm. to go to Thailand. Um, so, yeah, they, they really aren't taking it too seriously, which is, you know, what all the doctors say is exactly the right approach. Um, it, it's second, I think it's second or third on the list in terms of the most visited countries in the world. Um, so obviously tourism is quite a big, uh, quite a big, 
uh, portion of of GDP. I think it's stands it contributes something like ten percent to GDP, which is a massive, massive number uh, for any country. Um, which leads me to an interesting article that uh, I shared with you earlier. Uh, about some claims an Australian journalist is making about um, policing and the levels of crime which might not be uh, being reported and dealt with in an appropriate manner? Well, it was a really interesting article. Um, and there were two sort of big things that, that came out of it. Um, and this is, what, this is what this guy's book saying. The book hasn't been released yet, so we haven't had a chance to actually read the book. It's just this Daily Mail report of his book and an interview with this guy. Mm-hmm. And what this guy is saying is he said that, that Thailand's reputation as a sort of tourist heaven, as a land of smiles where everyone's so friendly, is actually completely undeserved. And the, the more you get to know Thais, the less friendly they actually are. And you, and you realize that behind this sort of false smile is actually a, um, a, a sort of, um, that, 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 that's a facade masking their contempt for foreigners. Mm. Um, that was one point. The other point was that um, there's actually a lot more crime against foreigners going on than, than gets reported. Um, and that something like uh, plus or minus 300 Britons died in Thailand over the last year, 250 the year before that. Now, the way the Daily Mail wrote this story... Mm. Um, and bearing in mind, this is a Daily Mail article, right? Yes, exactly. And then we've got to take that into consideration. The way the Daily Mail wrote the story is that these 400 or so deaths um, were clearly a result of this unreported crime. Now, that's rubbish, complete rubbish. Um, there's a huge, very old expatriate population of Britons in um, Bangkok, well, in, in Thailand on the whole. Um, the, by far, the vast majority of those numbers are people just dying in Thailand because they, they're quite old. And that's what they've gone there to do. They've gone gone to Thailand to live out um, the last few days of their lives in sunshine and beer and pretty ladies. Um, so, I, you know, that, that's a bit of a false start. It's not like 300 mm-hmm. Britons have been murdered. Mm-hmm. The ones that have been murdered, we have heard about. Particularly that that, that couple that, that mm-hmm. died on, I think it was Koh Samui mm-hmm. recently. Yeah. However, you know, the, the underlying point that there is a lot of crime that goes unreported is absolutely true. Um, also, the this um, claim he makes that that tourists aren't actually that welcome, and it's something I've experienced myself. I have been fortunate in that I've lived in um, five or six countries for six months or longer, and without you know, without any shadow of a doubt, Thailand I found the hardest to break into. I found that no matter how much I tried to learn the language and speak to local people and try to get through, they, they just weren't interested. They were they were jaded, generally. This is, of course, a, a big generalization, mm-hmm. and um, there's plenty of individual exceptions. But, but on the whole, that was my experience as well. In fact, the local slang word for tourists is, is wonderful. It's, uh, the phrase is kinok, which means bird shit, because uh, a tourist fly in from above and shit on their country. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and, and I guess when, you, when you're hosting 30, up to 30 million people a year, um, you know, it can, it can feel mm-hmm. like that after a while, you know, year in and year out, you know, and when, when exactly. a lot, and it's not always um, every country's finest um, that are heading to Thailand for a holiday as well. And very, very rarely it is a country's finest, actually. 
And, um, and, you know, there's also a huge problem that ties have with the way their country is perceived by these people that visit it. Um, and uh, I didn't mean to take you to task for your, your opening comments, but that's exactly part of the problem, is Thailand is seen as this place of sex shows and ladyboys. And that's, that's not the country at all. It's nothing to do with the country, really. It's just a little freak show that um, tourists like to go and visit. So it's, it's really um, quite a... There's some deep cultural problems coupled with the fact that they simply can't do without the tourists. So no matter how much they hate this, they know they need it. And it's a really tricky situation to be in because uh, were they to, to take a stand and, and try and, you know, curtail tourist behavior and, I don't know, limit numbers, etc., that would backfire on the economy. Now, also, this is where... Um, the problem of not reporting crimes, etc., comes in, is that even if the government does want to enforce some stuff, and they have passed laws, you know, laws instituting a curfew at something at 1 o'clock, laws um, trying to restrict the sex shows, etc., etc. Well, the problem is the police are so deeply embedded with the um, bars and the clubs and the hotels that these laws are simply unenforceable. Um, there's, a, there's a bar I, I go to quite a lot in Hua Hin, which is a town about three hours south of Bangkok, and it happens to be owned by the son of the local police chief, which is very convenient, because when all the other bars close at 2 p.m., when the, when, when the police go to make sure those other bars are closed, uh, this police chief's bar stays open as long as it chooses. Um, inside there, you can drink as much as you like, smoke as much as you like, do drugs if you are that way inclined, and no one will, um, no one will say a word because cause that club has protection, and it's pretty much inviolable. And uh, that sort of relationship happens all over Thailand with the various um, tourist areas and, and the police districts. So, it, 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 look, it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating question that, that this, this guy is raising, also, I think that as a tourist, you know, you, you've got to go into these things with, with your eyes open. Um, and, and so much of the violence and the aggression that I've seen from Thais against foreigners is so often to do with foreigners behaving really, really badly um, and doing things that are considered extremely disrespectful. Like well, one incident in particular I remember is, is, is some foreigner was complaining about the king's portrait being on the wall. Um, he, you know, he was saying, oh, why is this king's face everywhere? And then he went up and he grabbed it, and he took it down, and he put it on floor level by people's feet. Now, this is an unforgivable insult to the king um, and to any Thai person. This is, you know, the, the, the king has a religious status, um, so does his portrait. Um, to then take that to take that portrait and, and demean it by by putting it near feet, which is um, feet are extremely disrespectful in Thai culture. That is one of the biggest possible insults. And yeah, this guy got the, got the crap beaten out of him. And frankly, he deserved it. Um, I, I guess bearing in mind that it is a Daily Mail article that we were reading, uh, making these claims about the number of British deaths and the fact that the book isn't out yet, we'll, we'll probably need to reserve judgment on, on, on how those 300-odd Britons a year are, are, dying in, uh, are dying in Thailand. Um, Simon, uh, uh, moving back to the continent, uh, the one that you love so much, um, some crap, some big crap going down in Tripoli, in Libya, overnight. Oh man, that place is just, it's, it's, it's finished. 
um, I, I can't see a way out. So what's happened now is the Libyan Air Force has bombed the last remaining airport in the capital, Tripoli, which happens to be the Libyan Air Force base. So the Air Force has bombed its own base. Now, the reason it's doing that is because the Air Force is actually controlled by um, one of the rogue militia leaders and is not really loyal to the Air Force proper anymore. Tripoli itself is not in the control of the internationally recognized government. So there's a renegade parliament in Tripoli that's operating there. The real government is thousands of kilometers away in a place called Tobruk, right by the Egyptian border, which is convenient so that if they need to escape very quickly, they can. Um, meanwhile, Benghazi and another city quite close to it are under the control of Islamist militants who have declared their territory, territory to be part of an Islamic caliphate and uh, declared uh, their support for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. So you've got four or five competing centers of power, all with varying levels of armaments, um, allegedly some being supported by foreign countries, the Tobruk government, by the UAE and, uh, I can't remember the other one, and uh, UAE and Saudi, I think, and the uh, Benghazi Islamic government, apparently, by Qatar and um, Sudan. So, I mean, what a complete and utter mess this is. And it seems like it's spiraling about, out of know, control, it, it, uh, that complete it absolutely is. I mean, I, I think uh, spiraled out of control. Mm-hmm. We can already talk about it mm-hmm. in the past tense. Um, so the two things we should look at, one is the past, one is the future. The future, what is this going to mean, not just for Libya, because say, for example, this Islamic State caliphate guys, what if they can start controlling more power? What if they become a base where... Um, jihadists from all over the region can gather, um, can train, can mm-hmm. start moving outwards into other vulnerable countries. I'm thinking Mali, Tunisia, Algeria in particular. I mean, this is a very fragile part of the world already. What if they decide? Um, uh, what if they decide they want to go in and take over the, the whole country, uh, and basically the entire region then becomes? Uh, in the firing line, you know, if they go in and say, well, Libya looks like it's right for the taking. I think we'll take Libya. Let's go in there. Um, and then just the whole, the whole region then looks like it's, um, you know, in, in trouble. Exactly. It's a little the, the domino effect. You know, once one goes, the rest are so weak that, that you think surely they will follow. I think that were, were that to happen, uh, we would see a strong international reaction. I don't think that the likes of France and America can, will uh, permit that to happen. Um, of course, I think that will unleash a disastrously bloody war inside Libya itself. Um, so, yeah, who knows if that's the best option either. Now, looking back into into the past, you know, what, what, what caused this? I can't help but think a lot of the African Union. And I know we criticize this, this body a lot, and they deserve lots of the criticism. But when the whole Libya thing was happening. They said to France, they said to Italy, they said to the English and the Americans, they said, don't go in. Do not try and unseat Gaddafi with your bombs. It's not going to work. It's going to make things worse. Let us handle this. Let us go in. We'll talk. We'll negotiate. It'll take a long time. It won't be satisfying. It's not going to be this glorious people power victory that the Western democracies are so obsessed with. But we think it's going to work. We think our quiet diplomacy, a la Tabo and Becky, 
um, our client diplomacy approach is far more effective. It's going to lead to less instability, less loss of life, and a far better functioning country coming out at the end. Even if what comes out at the end is not a 100% fully-fledged democracy, it's still going to be an improvement on what Gaddafi is running now, and it's going to be a massive improvement on what's going to happen if you unseat Gaddafi. And you know what? The African Union was 100% right, and maybe we should start listening to them more. Well, I, I was about to say, um, you know, we should uh, mark that moment down in the diary um, when the when the AU was a hundred percent right. Um, <laughs> Simon, uh, before I let you go, uh, I was catching up on one of my favourite uh, news programs over the weekend, uh, the last week tonight with John Oliver, uh, and we had just um, finished before we, you you were on the line. We were just speaking to Ranjini Munsami about uh, the latest going ons and the scandals around in Kandla, uh, which just won't go away for. Our president, but in this segment on last week tonight, they did a um, in de- had an in depth look at President Erdogan's thousand room palace uh, in in Turkey, uh, and I just got to thinking: should we think that Nkandla is just on another scale? But this presidential palace in Turkey is just something else to behold. Um, I don't know if you saw the segment or you if you've had a chance to look, but. Thousand, I, thousand rooms, like we, we, you know, and, and as I said in the segment, like you know, you get to five hundred and you go, yeah, what do we do with the next one? You know, after this, you know, like thousand rooms. <laughs> well, look, um, first of all, on, on Inkandla, I've always been quite amused and very encouraged, I must say, by the strong South African reaction to Inkandla, because put it in the international context, and Inkandla is peanuts. It's nothing. It's what the Obiangs of Equatorial Guinea spend on one shopping trip to France, okay? Um, if you're serious about scamming your country, we're talking billions and billions and billions. Zuma and Nkandla, that's small fry, it's small change. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's what encourages me. It's, it's that we're not even letting him get away with small change, never mind the big stuff. Um, that's a good thing. Yeah, the Europeans now, now do it properly uh, in billions. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, now Erdogan um, and his palace, one crucial difference, this is not his personal palace. Um, it is the state. So it is still state property. Um, it's not for the, for the personal gain of one individual. And that is quite a crucial difference. Another thing is, um, you know, I've, I also used to live in Istanbul. And every time visitors came, we take them around all the wonderful, glorious palaces of the Ottoman era, the, the Doma Bachi, the Top Kapı, these, these incredible um Byzantine, not quite the, you know, this Ottoman architecture, which is so splendid and glorious and has lasted for so long. Um, I bet you when they were built, however many thousand years ago, um, the people reacted in exactly the same way and said, what the hell are you building this monstrosity for? Um, we need food. Um, but there is a point where, you know, we've almost lost sight of, of building things to, for the sake of building these, these incredible, beautiful um huge things. And and I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Um, I, I, you know, if you were to give me the vote or give me the choice, I would not build an ornate palace. But I think we should just consider that before we make our judgment on this issue, that, that, um, uh, it's, it's a, you know, now we go around and admire all these palaces. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that we go to the the Vatican City and admire those cathedrals, I mean, those those are built in the blood of Mm -hmm. however many hundreds of thousands of, of Christians. I mean, it's disgusting. We should bomb the place. 
Um, <laughs> but we don't. We instead we admire it. Instead we admire it. Um, yeah. so maybe maybe for everyone just mm. needs time. Mm. Look, I, I do think one of the biggest reasons as well was that they uh, they destroyed quite a lot of green space in the city. Um, you know, to make way for the presidential palace. So there was a lot of environment. There were some environmental issues uh, around that as mm. well. But uh, Simon, listen, I'm going to let you get back to your jet lag uh, and dealing with it and those. Um, those ping pong balls that you may have smuggled back in. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, thanks again, once again, for joining us on the show. All right, cheers, Lily. Thanks. Cool. Um, we're about to wrap up another uh, show on uh, on uh, the Daily Maverick show on Cliff Central. Uh, before we go, uh, Andrea, I just need your input one more time. Um, Brain Porn, uh, the best of collection of Daily Maverick. It's 50 essays from our first five years. I know you've had a copy with you for a while. <laughs> um, have you got a, a favorite article, favorite essay from the book uh, that you've read so far? Um, I think they're all really excellent. Um, right answer, you can thank stay. You. <laughs> um, I think the the one right now which uh, is resonating with me, um, which Ryan Jenny wrote, um, called Our Scourge, uh, for, was you know written just after Anine Boyson's murder, um, and focuses on how South Africa is, is quite numb to you know acts of extreme brutality and violence against um, you know women in particular. Um, and obviously that's, that's very relevant at the moment. I, what was interesting about the article was, um, it also looked at some of the, the root causes of that. Um, and I don't know, you know, like campaigns like the one happening now, you know, you see marches and there's a lot of rhetoric and talking, but, um, how do we actually address these problems? You know, what's actually causing it and, uh, you know, what works? Mm. Um, so. That was interesting. It, you know, she looked at some of the social and economic um, factors um, and how a lot of these behaviors are socialized. You know, children see what's happening around them and, and mimic it and, and learn it from a young age, that kind of thing, um, which maybe also suggests um, how we could possibly try to start countering it. Um, so, One of the uh, uh, more moving pieces, I mean, they're all very well written, but this mm. one really sort of, you know... Um, yeah, it just smacks you in the face when you read this one. It's in the same the same section, mm. our scourge, um, which is uh, I think the only article we've ever published where we didn't put the author's name. We published it under anonymous, and um, the the essay is titled um, "I thought I'd say hi to a couple of rapists." Yeah, that was and yeah, um, very powerful. this um, and then this this the reason is this person is quite famous and. Um, he he tells the story of how his wife was raped, mm. um, you know, 20 years ago in white middle class suburbia, uh, and he imagines what these two guys who, who who raped his wife what they'd be up to today, and whether they actually, you know, consider or think back to that moment where her life was inextricably changed. Yeah, and um, the ongoing repercussions that that person and everybody she knows, you know, deals with for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and, and obviously how it affected them affected their marriage uh, and everything. So a very very powerful piece mm. and. And it's something that's it's always stuck with me. So mm. if you get the chance to to pick up a copy of Brain there, Porn, there are a lot of other subjects covered though yeah, in yeah, Brain Porn. No, I think we yeah, should add yeah. <laughs> it's not only limited to gender based violence. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, that's it. We're getting the uh, wrap it up sign from our producer Duncan again, the party pooper. Uh, we're having so much fun here. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, our guests. Uh, we called today on Jenny Munasami, Simon Allison, and Andrew Teagel for coming in, and a very special thanks to Escom for keeping the lights on today. <laughs> Hopefully this will go, go, go down with us again next week. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll, we'll catch you the same time next week.